podcast has bad words. <laughs> well, hello. We're back, patrons. What's up? Thanks so much for your support, y'all. We're here with Paul Saladino. He is the host of the Fundamental Health Podcast and also the author of the new book, The Carnivore Code. We've been talking mm-hmm. today about plant toxins. We've been talking about what's healthy, what isn't healthy. We've got so much more to cover. Yeah. I th- Ryan, I thought you know, we, we often start with an article and we'll, hopefully we'll get to this because I think it really captures the sort of healthy zeitgeist of our culture right now. Mm-hmm. And we, we like to start with an article. But before we do that, we were just talking in the bathroom, Ryan. You, you were you were talking about like, hey, maybe I should I well, should go carnivore. Well, so yeah, so like the eczema thing really hits hits a nerve with me because in a good way. Like I have this eczema that has been developing over the last three years and i've noticed uh like if i drink alcohol let's say you know i go out and like having a good time and i have you know four five six drinks over a four or five hour period like alcohol will definitely like dry me out um especially in my beard like it's crazy um for a little bit so I went to go take care of my grandmother last year uh, in, in May. She's in Okeechobee, Florida. And uh, we went to go stay with her for a month, uh, me and my wife. And uh, all of a sudden, I started having this eczema, uh, like just super red, dry, scaly, like up on my lip, in my beard, in my head. And I'm like, what the heck is going on? And then I realized, I'm like, oh, I'm eating eggs every single day. So maybe it's eggs because I know sometimes eggs can be an inflammatory. So anecdotally, I cut eggs out of my diet, but I was still getting it. And, and long story short, I was telling Josh how I realized it wasn't the eggs. It was this hot sauce that my aunt had left down there. Yeah, the <laughs> the peppers. Um, it, but not Paul, just the peppers, but the canola oil. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. So uh, Paul was pointing at the peppers on this on this cover of this magazine um, and how you were talking about how those are inflammatories. So yeah, so I, I, I finally put it together because I, I had this hot sauce for the first time down in Okeechobee. I went... Uh, when we came back here to LA, I love I like the hot sauce so much. I was like, oh, I'm gonna buy this and start putting it on everything. Cut out eggs. I was still getting the, that eczema result. But yes, um, the difference between the red hot, uh, it's a wing sauce, is what I was introduced to, versus like just the regular red hot. Um, and I was literally looking at this the other day um, because I was finally coming to grips with like, oh, it's the wing sauce. Like this is what's giving me the inflammation. Uh, the only difference is is that the wing sauce has canola oil in it and it has xanthan gum. So I don't know. It's probably the canola oil that's being the inflammatory. I don't know if it's a xanthan gum. Could be. But yeah, I've had to like, um, I've realized like I have to cut that wing sauce out of my diet or I'm going to get these like huge, crazy, like scaly patches of skin going on. Well, let's talk about, let's talk about the canola oil and other oils and why those yeah. aren't ideal for us. You also don't have like, you don't eat olive oil or anything. Although that seems like it would be less problematic than, say, a canola oil, right? Sure. Now, mm. Ryan also mentioned uh, for weight loss, he broke his back a year ago, and mm. since then, you've gained... Yeah, probably like 15 pounds. Like, just... Because w- before I broke my back, I was uh, just under 200 pounds, and uh, was I had, you know, great exercise habits. Uh, my diet was very clean, very few bad carbs i was still doing vegetables so i was still getting carbs but let's say i was eating like 50 carbs a day like it wasn't it wasn't a ton um i also wasn't drinking as much alcohol and then i broke my back and i was like well screw it like if i'm gonna be sitting here laying in bed like i obviously can't work out and i'm gonna eat some delicious well it all started with someone sent me a get well basket of like godiva chocolates (laughs) and i was like well might as well eat them don't want them to go to waste so long story short, uh, I'm around like 210, some days like 215, 
And I'm just at a point where I want to, I, I just want to get back to that good, that good shape. Uh, my diet has been pretty decent. I've been exercising pretty decent, but I know that my diet could be cleaner. So um, yeah, I guess, yeah. Talk to me about losing weight healthy. Uh, talk to talk to us about vegetable oils. Um, you pick whatever you want to start with. <laughs> <laughs> Here's a whole here's a whole pile right. of laundry. You just unpack That's it however you, you unpack want. It. All right. You go, Paul. Thoughts? <laughs> thoughts on everything. No, I think it's this is what we're talking about, right? What is healthy? Mm-hmm. How do we create a healthy diet for a human? What does that mean for you? What does it mean for Joshua? What does it mean for me? And one of the things that I'm trying to share with people in the carnivore code, this idea with the carnivore diet, is not just that everybody needs to eat meat exclusively, but that plants can have toxins. Plant oils can be toxic and compounds in our food, xanthan gum, mm. canola oil, which is highly oxidized, can trigger autoimmunity. Mm. In, you know, uh, previously today, we talked about how I really hope that Western medicine wakes up to the fact that so many of the things that we experience as humans that are autoimmune are connected with food that we are putting in our mouth. Mm-hmm. If you had gone to a doctor and said, hey, I'm getting this X on my face, my beard, my hair, they'd be like, here's a cream. Yeah. Or here's an oral steroid. Yeah. And they're, they're not going to say, did you start eating hot sauce, you know? Right. Or did you start, did you change anything with your food? They might say, did you change your shampoo? Yeah. But they're not going to say, did you change your diet? Yeah. Right? But there are so many things in our diet that can affect us negatively as humans and trigger reactions. So I just hope to call attention to the fact that plants do exist on a spectrum of toxicity. We can talk more about the plant toxins and where they are and why they are. Mm-hmm. But if people are not in a good space, if they're having autoimmune issues, if they're inflamed or they're suffering with pain or psychiatric illness, illness, plants can be triggering this. Maybe not all plants, but some plants. And as you had to figure out, some things are triggering it and you got to do a little detective work to figure it out and and eliminate it and go through that process of an elimination diet. We touched on the canola oil. This is such an interesting thing because, you know, rewind the tape 30 years, even rewind the tape 10 years, even rewind the tape two years, the American Heart Association is still telling people to eat canola oil. Still telling them to eat canola oil. Yes. Oh, wow. Canola oil is widely, widely held up still as a healthy oil Mm. because there is this overly myopic focus on LDL, which could lead us down the cholesterol rabbit hole if we want to go there. We do eventually. I've got got a question about it. Yeah. Yeah. But- you know, there's there's all these interesting stories about how saturated fat, which is really the foil, saturated fat is the the diametrically opposed fat to canola oil. They're almost mm. cast as like good and evil, except we don't really know which one's which, right? Mm, it's like right. it's kind of like you know um, uh, the usual suspects. You know, who is Kaiser Soze? Is it is it is it canola oil or is it saturated fat? Mm. Well. I would say that mainstream media is tricking us and trying to say that saturated fat is bad for us. And saturated fat can come in many forms. But saturated fat is also naturally occurring in animal fats and some plant fats. And as we talked about earlier, saturated fat is mainly vilified because of misleading epidemiology. Mm -hmm. These observational studies that say people who eat more of this saturated fat tend to have worse outcomes. But can we really say that correlation is causation and which saturated fats are being eaten? Is it possible that saturated fat is actually trans fat? It's saturated vegetable fat that's been made into saturated fat by hydrogenation of the oil. Or is it saturated fat that's associated with junk food or processed food? Mm. We can't actually say that all saturated fat is equal or bad for us, or even that an epidemiology study can show us that. Because Mm. when we do the interventional studies, which are actual experiments, rather than surveys looking at populations of people and dietary recall, 
Saturated fat doesn't look bad for humans. Mm. In fact, when we do experiments like this, we can look at LDL, and I don't want to get too far ahead of us, but we can look at LDL, we can look at lipids in the body, and we can give people a little more polyunsaturated fatty acids, which are um, things like um, canola oil, mm. right? And a little less saturated fat, and what actually happens is that while LDL levels go down, which mm -hmm. most people would say, that's great, yeah. although I disagree with that strongly, it's too myopic and too simplistic, levels of oxidized LDL and LP little a, which are both very good markers for cardiovascular disease, go up. Mm. All right, so we're, we're in the weeds here, but let's go back to fat for a second. So fat, um, I have gut dysbiosis, as you know. I've got, yeah, we found 53 ulcers in my small intestine. Don't know whether or not it's Crohn's disease. I'm currently taking Pintasa to reduce the inflammation. And uh, that has helped out a lot. In fact, it's, it's gotten me out of, uh, by reduced inflammation, it's, it's, it's helped with mood. And we're going to talk about mood and depression and a lot of other things here. But because of this, I can't, I, because of the current dysbiosis, I am not able to take in as much fat. Now, I tried a carnivore diet for two months, and it was wildly successful for the first 50 days for me. In fact, it was literally the best I ever felt in my life. And uh, prior to that, the best I ever felt was a pescatarian diet where it was mostly plant-based, but also I was eating fish uh, regularly, one or two times a day. The problem was I was eating the wrong kind of fish, eventually got mercury poisoning. That's a problem with, with our... It's not yeah. the problem with the fish. It's a, it's a problem with humans who have polluted the fish, yeah. right? And, and But pescatarianism worked really well for me. Ryan and I both did veganism for a year. Mm -hmm. We were in our... Whoa, whoa, hold on. I did it for a year. Josh did it for 11 months. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, the, joke, like, I, the joke is we had a bet who could go the longest. Yeah. And I just want you know I just wanted to be clear that he I did. won the we, bet. We bet a dollar. I still owe him a dollar. <laughs> uh, you have to pry it out of my cold, dead hands. <laughs> uh, here, here's the thing. And we're going to talk about morality for... Uh, uh, both of these sides, veganism and, and, and carnivory. Uh, but uh, with fat right now, I am the meats I'm eating currently, like I'm, I can't eat any fiber right now without being utterly destroyed. My diet is essentially lean meats and white rice. And I'll talk to you about why the white rice and honey, uh, why that's important for me. Um, at day 50 of the carnivore diet, which by the way, I felt the best I ever felt. My libido was higher than when I was 19. And I was, what, 37? Like, Bex was having to run away from me. Like, it was like twice a day. I'm like chasing her down. Libido was amazing. Energy, amazing. Mental clarity, best I have ever experienced. My skin issues, I didn't have many skin issues, but like acne and things like that, small things, all cleared up. Um, and, and, and so, like, I was feeling like on top of the world in terms of the 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 energy the mood there weren't like crazy mood swings and I actually felt like I needed less sleep um, I had receding gums my gums came back I didn't even know that was possible I've talked to dentists they're like no there's nothing you can do they're just gonna keep receding for the rest of your life wow um, if it gets real bad we'll have to do a root canal or something and and mm. and so that was terrifying and then I did this for two months but day fifty right around day fifty day fifty one my sleep started. <laughs> tanking and um i asked our our friend tommy wood about this and actually I, I wrote it down because he sent me this response this is several years ago when i when i did this this is before I, all the the crazy the food poisoning and the gi issues mm -hmm. started but here's what tommy said about the uh the the sleep he, he recommended bringing some carbs back in he said because insulin spikes from higher carb intake pushes large amino acids into the muscles 
which seems to free up available tryptophan to enter the brain and be converted to serotonin and then <laughs> melatonin. A single high glycemic index meal, like white rice, what I'm eating right now, uh, during the day certainly seems to help some people sleep. And I found that with me. My sleep is back to great because I add a white rice and honey in once or twice a day. Um, what's wrong with white rice? Okay, so much there. <laughs> I love that story, though. I love that you were doing so good on a carnivore diet. And I just want to highlight the dental benefits. The dental benefits with carnivore are amazing. And I've heard that story over and over. My gums stopped receding on a carnivore diet. Mm. Your, your mouth, you don't even have to brush your teeth. You don't get the furry mittens on your teeth when you don't eat carbohydrates, mm. right? Or when you don't eat a lot of plant foods. To your question, I don't think there's a whole lot wrong with white rice. And I talk about this in the book with a carnivore-ish diet, mm -hmm. you know? White rice is a grain. So technically it's one of those things that could be more toxic for humans because it's a plant seed, mm -hmm. plant baby. Mm -hmm. But we've done something really ingenious with white rice. We've stripped the jacket off of it. So brown rice is, has the jacket. Brown rice has the jacket. It's got a brown leather jacket on, right? Uh -huh. <laughs> and in the brown rice leather jacket, there are all sorts of things. Arsenic. Like arsenic and, yeah. and more anti-nutrients, phytic acid, mm. digestive enzyme inhibitors. White rice is, has a few lectins, which are carbohydrate binding proteins. But if you're not sensitive to those, white rice is basically glucose in a polymer as dextrose or you know complex carbohydrates. Specifically, white rice is probably not a dextrose polymer per se, but it is polymers of glucose. Glucose is a sugar molecule that your body uses. So Tommy's right. Tommy and I have had that same conversation. We are pals as well. Mm -hmm. It's interesting for me that that happened after day 50. I wonder what changed. Right? Why, wasn't, why weren't you able to get tryptophan into your brain after 50, but for the first 50 you were? Yeah, I don't know. So after about two weeks is when I really started noticing all the, the, the improved benefits from the libido, the energy. I was in ketosis. It's harder for me to get into ketosis. My wife, if she skips a meal for an hour, she goes into ketosis. With me, it's like I either have to fast for three days or I had to do a, a carnivore diet. And even then it was like... 0.5 or 0.7 millimolars. It wasn't. It wasn't like off the charts ketosis. If Beck's fast for a day, she's like, it's like two millimolars or whatever. There's some genetic variability in terms of how we make and use ketones. The blood level of ketones. These are things like beta hydroxybutyrate for people that are not familiar. Is dependent. Well, hold on, real quick. So for people who don't know what ketosis is. Right. So there, there are basically two sources that y your body uses for fuel. Right. It's either glucose or ketones, right? Essentially, mm. in a very simplistic model, yes, you can use both. We're like a car that's both diesel and unleaded, mm. uh -huh. right? But a lot of us, because we haven't run diesel, I mean, I don't know which, that, that infers that there's more emissions, whatever. <laughs> All of that stuff aside, you know, yeah. we have two fuels and a lot of us haven't used well, the one's second electric, fuel. So, so one's I, electric, it's gas and electric, yeah, right? We'll call we ketones electric, okay. paint it a little better, right? But a lot of us haven't used the electric system of our bodies for decades mm. right? because we are in this overly carbohydrate available society. Yeah. Right. As we talked about earlier today, the I think that the availability of carbohydrates for us evolutionarily would have been occasional, but much less than we have now. And I think that our default state would have been mostly running on electric, mm -hmm. mostly running on ketones. So your body can take fat and break it down into component molecules, which become things like acetyl-CoA, and that can form ketones mm -hmm. in the body. And then ketones can be used by some tissues. Some tissues of the body, specifically the brain, the testicles, the kidneys, still need a little glucose. But muscles, a lot of other tissues in the body can run on ketones. They can go electric. Now, mm -hmm. we get glucose from protein as well through something called glucone 
gluconeogenesis. Yes, you can take in glucose from white rice. Uh You can take in glucose from fruit. You can take in glucose from many foods with carbohydrates, which are either simple uh, sugars or um, they are polymers of glucose linked together. And we can get, um, we can also make glucose, which is one of the amazing things that happens for humans in ketosis. Hmm. We can take the backbone of a triglyceride. So fat, when we eat it, is triglycerides. It kind of looks like a, uh, a, a, a like a sea fish, uh, not a sea fish, a, a jellyfish with three tentacles. Hmm. And the top of the jellyfish is a glycerol molecule. The tentacles are fatty acids. And those tentacles can get broken down into fats in the body, which can be used to make ketones with the glycerol head of the fatty acid molecule we can make glucose or we can turn some amino acids the gluconeogenic amino acids into glucose so our body has the ability to do this we can make the fuel there's no such thing for humans as an essential carbohydrate is one of the adages so Mm -hmm. so the the three types of of macronutrients are carbohydrates, fat, and protein. And And two of those are essential, you're saying? Two of those are essential. Some people actually add ketones as a fourth macronutrient. Okay. Because Hmm. we can, you can take them into the body. You can actually eat exogenous ketones. Right, but those are processed foods, essentially. I would would agree with that, yes. But you could consider the main, the, the, the macronutrients that we find in our food are protein, fats, and carbohydrate. And of those, humans only have a physiological requirement for protein and fat. I'm not saying carbohydrates are bad. They can be used. In this case, it helps with your sleep. So that mm-hmm. could be potentially what's going on with the tryptophan um, thing. But uh, the source of the carbohydrates is very important. As you note, if you eat the wrong source of carbohydrates with a lot of fiber, mm-hmm. your gut gets way worse. Well, especially so if, if I were to eat a potato right now, just a regular white potato. Now, especially when I was at the peak of my, my dysbiosis, when I was the most inflamed, if I ate a potato, I would like feel inflammation in all of my joints. It, I'd wake up in the morning, it feels like my ankles are broken. It, it, my back would hurt, my neck would hurt, like places I didn't, this shouldn't hurt, my toes would hurt. And, and so it's like, it's an arthritic response. This is immunologic activation is probably the most compelling hypothesis here, that there are things in the potato, specifically lectins, which are common in nightshade vegetables, mm-hmm. or other things which are triggering the immune system in your gut, and that immune system is sending out its armies, and those armies are now triggered, and they're seeing the synovial joints, the cartilage, or the pieces of your neck, and the, you're having an immune response mm-hmm. in those tissues, and that's where you get inflammation, right? Yes. You get this activation of the immune system. So it's, it's a little bit what we could say is molecular mimicry or the immune system getting activated, there are these patrolling guys around in your body and some of them are gonna target different places in you than they would me. Mm-hmm. So this is one of the concepts I talk in the book. You ever seen The Price is Right? Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. You like Plinko? <clears throat> Love it. Plinko's like my favorite game. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you get this slanted board, right? You stand at the top of the slanted board with a disc and the, there's the pins on the board and you kind of let the disc go on the board and it pings down right. and ends up in a well at the bottom which has a dollar amount. Mm-hmm. Well, this is the way that I think about inflammation in the human body and why hmm. when you get inflamed, you get you get problems in your joints. Mm -hmm. When I get inflamed, I get eczema. You might get eczema. Someone Mm -hmm. else might get rheumatoid arthritis, heart disease. I think that this is one of the key depression, depression, anxiety, psychiatric diseases, absolutely inflammatory and autoimmune. You had someone on your podcast, I think from Harvard, where he's talking about doing ketogenic and carnivore diets for people with with schizophrenia, which- Bipolar. Yeah, yeah. Chris Palmer. 40% 40% of the males in my immediate family have died from schizophrenia, basically killed themselves from, been, been schizophrenic and killed themselves. So two out of five. Uh, and, and so like, 
I always assumed, like a lot of people do, that like it's rust of the brain, as, as he was talking about. But actually, what we're seeing is a reversal, even in older people. I think there was a septuagenarian who reversed her depressive, her manic depressive states. Now, of course, it doesn't necessarily cure it, but it manages symptoms so effectively that it's effectively cured. It depends how you define a cure, right? Right. right? right. Um, that's that's kind of that's a nuance there. People yeah. will say that you know if you have a carnivore diet, and your autoimmune disease gets better, is it cured? I would say it is because yeah. I think that that's a a fairly congruent thing to be doing in your life ev- mm-hmm. from an evolutionary perspective. And like I suggested earlier, I think being in a, a state of metabolism that is not focused on carbohydrates, maybe occasional or small amounts of carbohydrates, I think of that as a very ancestrally congruent thing. So I would say that's essentially a cure, mm-hmm. right? You are affecting the root cause. If if you are affecting the root cause, I think you are curing the issue. But people are not convinced of that. They, <clears throat> I think that they only think of it as a cure if you can eat everything. You don't have to change your lifestyle right, at all. Yeah. When people balk at the fact that any of these interventions are a cure, it's almost like they're saying um, that you you couldn't be curing something if you have to make any lifestyle changes. Right. Mm. But to, to yeah. be fair, the, to counterpoint that, there was a time when I was in my 20s when I could eat any of this stuff and I did not have the same immune response. Right. And so I, I think that there's another point there where it's like, I, I kind of would love to just get back to where I was when I was 22 and be able to eat the nonsense and, and not experience the, the joint pain. So what do, what do you say to that? Can we get back to that state ever? I don't think we can. Okay. <laughs> this is hypothesis, and I think Tommy and I should probably have some great conversations about that. But my suspicion is that there is an immunologically privileged part of our life in mm. the very beginning mm. where we are basically Gumby. <laughs> Yes. You know, and that is evolutionarily advisable or evolutionarily advantageous because we are tasked with spreading our genes. Right. Right. So this is why people can be in the NFL and eating chicken McNuggets. Right. This is why Usain Bolt can get multiple gold medals eating chicken McNuggets before. Right. It's like, but what we see frequently, and I don't think we fully understand this, is that somewhere around you know, we're spawning salmon and we get to that sort of time in our lives when we usually would have spawned mm-hmm. from an evolutionary perspective. We may not do that socially now by the time right. we're 25. Mm-hmm. Things start to change and yeah. we are no longer immunologic Gumbies or immunologic, uh, you know, uh, supermen and mm-hmm. things start to affect us. And at that point, it appears observationally that we have to be a little more sensitive to what we're doing in our lives. But it's quite interesting because you think about bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, psychiatric illness. A lot of the first breaks are in the 20s, mm-hmm. right? And kids Late can eat 20s in kids can eat junk food. You know, sometimes yeah. kids do get psychiatric illness, but sure, you know, sure. um, bipolar in children is not actually a formal recognized diagnosis, and that's not wow. because it doesn't exist. It's because within psychiatry, it is not felt that it really is true, that that bipolar in the brain actually really only happens, and this is something that's evolving when we are older. Right. Mm -hmm. So there is this kind of privileged period that then changes. And a lot of people, I think, realize this in their 30s or their 40s. They start to get problems and it catches up with you. Well, why does it have to be? We don't really see that pattern. And again, this is a little bit of um, a dangerous statement to make. But in terms of anthropology and looking at indigenous cultures, we don't see that pattern in indigenous people. If we look at human functionality and we 
uh, and we look at morbidity or um, how able we are to to function and vitality in our lives. In Western culture, we tend to have this kind of flat line, and then around that that time, you know, 20, 30 years old, it goes steadily downward. But in indigenous people, we got what's called squaring of the morbidity curve. It goes like this, and then it drops off very steeply. Hmm. And the observation is that indigenous peoples don't experience chronic disease, depression, inflammation, uh, diabetes, cancers, rheumatoid conditions, like we do in Western society. Hmm. And they don't lose functionality steadily like we do. They go all the way, and they're very functional until the day they die, and then months are weeks, and then they just drop off very quickly. Interesting. They're, they're Mark Sisson or Laird Hamilton. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Uh, and then they three weeks before they die, they decline very quickly. And what's Laird, Laird's wife's name? Gabby Reese. Yeah. yeah. So like she's yeah. You, know, you, you see that where where you have people who are in their fifties who are performing way better than your average twenty something year old um, in, in America, Westerner. Now now let's let's talk about this because the average person listening to this probably has some variation of a standard American diet. I know I did. Ryan Ryan did, and all my problems started when I was twenty seven. Okay, and, and uh, I started. I, I had a gluten sensitivity, so we could talk about gluten. I started getting seasonal allergies for the first time when I was 27, and uh, I started getting a lot of GI. Uh, well, I, I didn't know at the time that it was probably some sort of the beginning stages of a dysbiosis, but you know that was well over a decade ago that I I started getting these symptoms. And of course, when I go to the doctor, they're just like, have Beano or, you know, whatever, some sort of, it's a pill basically. So let's talk about gluten. Let's talk about the standard American diet. Let's talk about the problems with the food pyramid. Yeah. Mark Sisson wrote the forward to my book. Uh-huh. He's almost 70. And he looks amazing. He's, He's an animal. He's fitter than we will ever be, right? He's an animal. Wow. He's wow. an animal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The one thing I just want to add is that a lot of people will criticize discussions of indigenous peoples saying that their life expectancy is low. And those uh, numbers are confounded by higher infant mortality rates. Yeah. We've talked about that on the podcast. Okay. We, had, we had Chris Ryan on cool. here, which cool. we, we should connect you with him. I'd love to talk to yeah, him. Yeah. He's great. If we look at indigenous people who live to the age of 50, they, um, they live as long as us as westernized humans with less chronic disease. Mm. So standard American diet. What is there to say about it, man? Basically the worst combination of processed foods you could imagine. <laughs> now what's wrong with, just because something's processed, does that mean it's necessarily bad? I think it is. Uh, it creates an, uh, a discordance between what our bodies are expecting and what is out there. Mm. Um, we talked about rice. I mean, I guess you could say white rice is processed a little bit. Right. But many grains, when they are ground up into flours or um, grains are a good example. When they're ground up into flours and we eat them, they react with our body and the, something called incretin hormones differently than unprocessed food. Mm. I'm not a huge fan of grains in general, but flours and processed grains are probably even worse than non-processed grains. Mm. We have a series of hormones that our body is expecting to release or expecting to see released as food makes its way down our digestive tract. Mm. If we process the food and make it very digestible, it often gets absorbed early on in the digestive tract, oh. and the series of hormones doesn't happen. 
there are there's GIP, GLP, PYY, all these names. And if those don't happen in sequence, there's this dance, right, between all the hormones. And these are called, again, incretins. So the processed food appears to affect those differently. Mm. Many people will be aware of sugar and processed sugar. It's kind of the same thing. Sugar in a plant that's in a matrix is going to be digested differently and is mm. going to affect incretin hormones and overall satiety and the dance of hormones differently than sugar that has been stripped away mm -hmm. in Coca-Cola, right? The other problem with processed foods goes back to xanthan gum. Mm. There are many additives which our body has never seen. Oh. Carrageenan, binders, things like this. Okay. Processed foods can also have oxidized vegetable oils, which we know are dangerous mm. because they can change the lipid characteristics and make our lipid particles more susceptible to oxidation, or we can introduce free radicals with these oxidized oils. So processed food has so many problems, but it's a very valid question. Why is it bad for us, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. It tastes better. Isn't that yeah. something, isn't that a good indication that we should like it? <laughs> Probably not. Probably not. <laughs> well, I, I think of this, I joke about this, you know, the, the, the proverbial Pandora's box was opened with the first time we ate a Pop-Tart or a Skittle. Yeah. Or, like humans never the same again. Right. Yeah. yeah. Have you ever seen the video on Instagram of like a baby eating ice cream for the first time? Oh yeah. It's just like the it's, baby sticks its face in the ice cream cone. They're yeah. like just so elated. Yeah. They're, and that that is the beginning of yeah. diabetes. Yeah. <laughs> just that. <laughs> right. Like yeah. how yeah. will we ever undo the evolutionary program which says that is sweet, you should eat it because it's a berry and you're only going to see it for two weeks this year. Yeah. Into there's an ice cream shop on the corner. I'm gonna mm -hmm. go eat a whole bunch of ice cream because I had a rough day at work and it triggers that part of my brain. That little baby just sticks its face in the ice cream. So yeah. they're kind of, they're short circuiting our satiety mechanisms. In the book, yeah. so my dad helped me edit the book and his uh -huh. favorite line in the book was something, I'm not gonna be able to paraphrase it, but it was that processed food is this sinister recapitulation of the combination of fat and sugar found in breast milk and mm. how that short circuits our brains. Oh, wow. He was like, I love that, sinister recapitulation. And, and so yeah. sort of the opposite <laughs> of that, which is actually a good, a good segue. I know we're going all over the place here, but uh, this article we have from the New Yorker, it is, uh, Again, this is the something that I've been told. I have a six-year-old daughter, and and you know, she cannot stand vegetables. She hates eating vegetables. She won't eat her vegetables. Now, unfortunately, I can't get her to eat much meat either. <laughs> she likes carrots. Uh, she does love carrots, <laughs> which uh, is strange. I think she saw like Roger Rabbit eat a carrot once. Oh, and now, yeah. and so she she has been you know, sort of. Uh, um, uh, I, proselytized to by by i ate spinach cartoons. because of popeye there you go yeah. anyway how'd this, that work out for you <laughs> this, I mean, look at me <laughs> this, this new yorker article is called can babies learn to love vegetables now well, i'll tell you what ella does eat is she really likes milk and she really likes honey Hmm. And so, so, the, so it's a, that's like the, i guess the healthiest version of that's ice like the cream, most right? that's the most cliche like you know when you're in heaven everything is is milk and honey yeah <laughs> right and so she could like every time we i do the honey and she's like can i lick the spoon and like she she loves honey obviously and and the other thing she really likes is, is rice so she is addicted to carbohydrates for sure and are you know, we her, all her, a little bit for sure her, uh, well not him uh, we can talk about that too because carbohydrates are very rare evolutionarily so carbohydrates mm. can kind of hijack our programming but i want to well, get to this and, article and so so like with with when there's sugar cane or whatever it's like oh my gosh i i need to gorge on a bunch of calories right and that that really helped our ancestors 
10,000, 40,000, 70,000 years ago, but today we get to gorge on calories at every every corner store. Yeah. There's there's no um, there's no epidemic of calorie deficiency today in most westernized people. So yeah. And the, the the picture on the front of this is perfect. Kids do hate vegetables and you're saying that's probably a good thing. I'm saying that's probably an evolutionary indication that's that's like that's a sign of like that's a sign of where we come from yeah you, right. you when i look at a raw piece of broccoli i'm like oh shit do i have to eat this thing and yeah it, i still feel that way as an adult and you know what have you tried to eat raw broccoli do you get gas from it like i mean yes yeah right. bloating bloating yeah. and gas because yeah. that is not something that humans should be really be eating and i love this article and i love you brought that you brought this and this is one of the most Interesting parts of what I do is I get sent videos from people on Instagram of babies just mowing meat all the time. Mm. These little babies well, Ella just used to crushing. Love meat. Uh, in, wow. in fact, when we take her to like uh, like a barbecue place like Blood Sows or something, like she she'll walk in there and smell it. And she goes, mm, "It smells delicious in in That's here." That's great. Um, uh, my she, wife, she was like known like out of all the kids that her parents had, she would like just devour lamb and like, like any meat. Like they had to like make extra for Mariah because she would eat it all. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. So so this, uh, I'll just read, you know, it's a very long article. We're not going to read the whole thing, but we'll put a link to it in the show notes, Sean. Uh, it, it goes like this. Uh, here, here's the subtitle. No diet has been more obsessively studied, more fiercely controlled, or more anxiously stage managed than baby food. Yet... We still get it wrong. <laughs> in a laboratory in Denver, on a decommissioned U.S. Army base, a baby sits in a high chair with two electrodes attached to his chest. To his left, on a small table, a muffin, a muffin tin holds four numbered cups, each filled with a green substance. On the walls and the ceiling, four cameras and an omnidirectional microphone record the baby's every burble and squawk, then transmit them to a secure server in an adjacent room. What looks like a window with blinds across the room from the baby is, in fact, a two-way mirror with a researcher behind it scribbling notes. The baby's mother takes a spoonful of the first sample and lifts it to the baby's mouth. And the experiment begins. Building 500, as this facility was formerly known, has the looming hulk of an Egyptian temple. It was once the largest man-made structure in Colorado. When it opened in 1941, four days before the attack on Pearl Harbor, threats to American safety were much on the government's mind. Uh, the good taste study, as the baby experiment is called, is, a similar, is in a similar spirit. The two electrodes on the baby's chest will monitor his heart rate and how it fluctuates with his breathing. A third electrode on the, on the sole of the baby's foot will measure his galvanic skin response or how much he's sweating. Together, they'll indicate whether the green substance is triggering a fight or flight response. Does the baby sense danger? <laughs> Talk to me about the this, baby Paul. does. Yeah, the baby does. There have actually been multiple experiments like this, and they're so fascinating. You give a baby a variety of foods, and what do they pick? They generally pick meat and fruit. Mm -hmm. They don't usually pick kale. Yeah, they don't usually pick broccoli. And this is the source of consternation for so many parents because, as we talked about earlier. We have been told that kale is the mighty food and that your baby needs food. Mm. When we really break it down, though, is there anything in kale that's not in meat? And the answer is no. Meat is such a rich source of nutrients. There's what nothing. about vitamin K1? Oh, we can talk about, let me, okay, okay. Yeah. we can talk about K1. So there's two vitamin Ks, right? Right, K1 and K2. K1 and K2. Yeah. 
Yeah. K1 is phyloquinone. K2 is a family of menaquinones, which are multiple based on the chain length. In studies with vitamin K, vitamin K2, the more vitamin K2 people get, it's an observational study admittedly, but it's repeatedly shown that the more vitamin K2 people get in their diet, the lower incidence of heart disease and the lower incidence lower incidence of calcific aortic sclerosis. There's no association with vitamin K1. But doesn't K1 convert to K2 with the gut microbiome? How, but why would there not be a correlation? Why would there not be an association between K1 and those events if K1 actually converted to K2? Mm. I think most of us are very, very bad at converting K1 to K2. Okay. Mm. I talk about this in the book. Many of the things that are plant versions of chem of vitamins k1 beta carotene etc are very poorly converted in humans there's some genetic variation but i do not think that we make enough vitamin k2 out of vitamin k1 mm. and it's not associated and there's really only one or two good sources of k2 in the plant kingdom and they are like fermented soybeans which are rarely eaten in western society and mm. probably not a great idea because of all of the xenoestrogens mm -hmm. the <laughs> estrogen mimetics right. in soy right yeah. so Back to the point, there's really nothing valuable in kale, nothing unique in kale for that baby. Your baby doesn't need kale, and the baby knows. The baby doesn't have as, as much conditioning. The baby doesn't look at this magazine and go, that's healthy. The baby they just- They look at it and think it's colorful, but they don't think it's edible necessarily. Edible necessarily, right? Well, they would look and probably eat the, if you gave a baby this collection of foods, I bet they would eat the, the fruit before they would eat the vegetables. They certainly wouldn't go sure. straight for the broccoli. Or the pepper. Or the pepper, right. yeah. They're not gonna be very happy about the wing sauce. <laughs> so, so yeah. So you get K2 from meat. You get K2 from meat and organs and egg yolks. Okay. So let's, Super let, important. let's, let's talk about those things. So you, you often talk about, and you talk about this in the book, the a nose to tail carnivore diet. We, sometimes you, you hear of carnivore and you think this guy's eating ribeye steaks every day, which you might be, but you're all, you're not advocating for simply limiting it to muscle meats. Absolutely not for a variety of reasons. So in the book, I outline how to do a nose to tail carnivore diet. I talk about different types of a carnivore diet. But if you and I, if all of us, right, are in a tribe and we go respectfully stalk and hunt an animal and we appreciate the cycle of life and we can talk about this as well, we are not gonna waste any of that animal. And by not wasting any of that animal, we're gonna eat the liver and the heart and parts of that animal that we are not familiar with in mm. Western society, but are very common outside of the United States, right? right? If you talk to your friends from Morocco or Turkey or Israel, they eat liver and heart and kidney and yeah. brain. And many indigenous cultures do this. In fact invariably they do this they eat the bone marrow we know this right mm -hmm. they eat the brain and though that makes us kind of squeamish there are unique nutrients throughout an animal and so if someone were thinking about doing a carnivore diet i would dissuade them from eating this way unless they were going to be able to eat organ meats mm. because it's important to think about where our nutrients are coming from and though muscle meat is very rich in many nutrients it lacks others which are complementary in the organ meats mm. we can think about liver or kidney or other parts of the animal and we can talk about ways to get those in our diet that are more palatable and maybe mm -hmm. easier for a westerner yeah. but that's why we want to eat nose to tail both from a uh, resource perspective from a financial perspective these organs are very cheap mm. they're um, much more affordable than ribeyes and they provide unique nutrients ultimately for me a carnivore diet is achieving the best health that i can right, right. and trying not to be dogmatic and so um, trying not to be super limited in the way i'm thinking about it but nutrients are what make us healthy humans yeah. right we need the nutrients to be the building blocks in the biochemistry as mm. you're saying you know you need to get tryptophan into your brain mm -hmm. and you probably need other b vitamins to make so the 
The construction of melatonin from serotonin from tryptophan also requires B vitamins. Yeah, so you need B6, you need folate, you need riboflavin. Well, there's not a lot of riboflavin in muscle meat, right? So mm. this is just, just, it gives you this cohesion. in kidneys? Uh, riboflavin is in kidneys and liver mm -hmm, okay. and heart. So uh, how, how does a Westerner get this organ meat in their diet. Like uh, I went to a Peruvian restaurant like a week ago. Love it. And they do a uh, grilled heart. Anticuchos? Yeah, so good, man. It was so good. Um, if they wouldn't have told me it was heart, I never would have known. I would have thought it was a piece, a piece of steak or something. So uh, with liver specifically, I guess, because we talked about how, because I asked you before we started this the podcast, do you do those uh, those raw meat smoothies? I think you said, no, you don't do I that. don't do raw meat smoothies. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you do uh, raw liver. So do so do you do chicken liver or is it beef liver? Like, I do beef liver. I okay. do beef liver. And what's so funny is that the first podcast we did, after the podcast, I was like, Joshua, take out the part where I talked about raw liver. <laughs> I don't want people to think I'm crazy, <laughs> no. but I'm just owning it. I'm letting my freak flag fly nice, at this dude. point. Nice. I don't think everybody has to do raw liver. Okay. Um, there's pate. Okay. Right? There yeah. are lots of ways we can get liver. There's uh, liverwurst. There are lots of companies now that make liverwurst. You can get organ meats in liverwurst. There are many companies now doing organ grinds. Mm. Um, they will mix into ground beef, liver, and heart. And, and this is okay because this is still processed, but this is minimally processed. Well, it's just ground up. Okay. There is a small amount of processing, but okay. I would say it's a it's an acceptable amount of processing. Do you have anywhere, and I'm asking uh, not just for myself because I really- Please. Oh, yes. liver pills. Desiccated liver supplements. Nice. Yeah. I, I really, I really want to- Ancestral- Ancestral supplements. Yeah. So like, I really want to try- uh, maybe giving this carnivore thing a shot just because of the eczema that I've been experiencing and like I'm willing to kind of try anything to see if I can make it a little bit better. So for me and for our audience, like where does someone go to, for example, to get this ground up hamburger meat that has the organ stuff in there too? So I'm trying to get Belcampo, which is one of our favorite farms in Northern California. So good, yeah. Doing this regenerative agriculture. Like we can talk about how important that is. I'm trying to get them to offer an organ grind. They will. Okay. There are companies like US Wellness Meats, uh, White Oak Pastures, Okay. A lot of places online will get organ grinds. You probably can't go to Whole Foods to get it. Right. But it's becoming more of a thing these days. Okay. And but, but I can go to these two different websites that I can't even remember what you just said. US Wellness Meats is, is one I, I go to. I've, I've not done White, White Oak yet. Okay. But, but Sean, I'll put this in the show notes and you can go check out their organ grinds if you want. You yeah. Know all the yeah. pemmican I have in our freezer over there. My favorite kind of kin. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that, that's from US Wellness Meats. Oh, okay. okay yeah. Cool. So, um, uh, but, um, now I know some people are going to be like, but all this is really, really expensive. And it's funny because yeah, it's going to cost a little bit more, but can you really afford to not eat healthy? It's, it's, I, I would agree with you there. Yeah. I think you vote with your dollars and you invest with your dollars in mm -hmm. your own health. What is a better yeah. investment than your own health? Right. Right. And what are we spending our money on? I'm not going to tell people how to spend their money, but, um, I personally prioritize food because it allows me to live in a certain way. Yeah. I want to be able to surf and run and hike and do jujitsu and have a brain that functions as well as possible to keep up with you guys and be somewhat witty. Yeah. But I'll just <laughs> add before we move on that I do like raw liver. It's kind of radical for people, but that's what I'm all about. And Where do you I'll get do, your raw liver from? I get it from White Oak Pastures. Okay, cool. So Bel Campo. It's, okay, so uh, Bel Campo does have butcher shops, so you can go there and get their meats, but mm -hmm. like White Oak Pastures is probably, it sends it to you with a, mm -hmm. a dry ice, yep. pa cold pack. Okay. And you can eat it raw. Again, anytime a physician recommends a raw food, there has to be a disclaimer regarding yeah. foodborne safety. Right, but yeah. I've generally not had a problem with it. If it's pre-frozen. Generally, what does that mean? <laughs> I've not had a problem. Okay, with it. all right. <laughs> <laughs> I've not had a problem with it. In it's general, <laughs> I haven't had problems. <laughs> you, can, you can thaw it and you can make 
the way that I sort of euphemize it is liver sashimi. Mm-hmm. You know, you imagine you go mm-hmm. to a sushi bar, you eat raw salmon. Well, I'm going to eat raw liver in small pieces as sashimi. So you just kind of slice it up, thin slices. Thin slices. You don't chew it up. You just kind of put I, it in your mouth. You can, either, you can either shoot it and swallow it or chew it. But if it's in small slices, mm-hmm. I generally have found with people I work with, people I talk to on Instagram, raw liver is probably the easiest way to do it. It's pretty good. Once you get the hang of it, once yeah. you get used to it, um, do you chew I, it up or do you shoot it? I just shoot it. Yeah, I'm okay. A shooter. That's what I'll probably do too. Because like even like a with a really good cooked piece of liver, it's like like liver and onions. I've had some. It tastes amazing, but after I chew all the flavor out, it still tastes like a piece of liver. Yeah. So I would probably end up shooting it too. <laughs> and and I, do, I do the pills. Um. And my wife, you know, she is a paragon of health. Uh. The only sort of autoimmune-ish thing she had. She had these bumps on her arm. It has a particular uh, term. Keratosis pilaris. Yes. Um, and and she started taking some of my desiccated liver pills. And vitamin A deficiency. Yeah, it really... It, it didn't clear up 100%, but it, it it's significant. I can only imagine if she actually started eating regular liver, mm. uh, the difference she'd experience. Now, the, there are other organ meats as well. So I do desiccated pills for uh, bone marrow. I do it for collagen. Uh, I... Um, I do it heart, kidney. Um, there's like a mixture that Ancestral Supplements has. But I also understand that like you can do, if you don't want to eat testicles or... or um, Which are delicious, by the way. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> so, do you, so good. Do you cook them or do you eat those eat raw? You eat, you eat the testicles raw. Do you yeah. chew them? I do chew those. Oh my god. They're goodness. like scallops. Have you guys ever had scallop sashimi at a restaurant? I have, yeah. So I've had testicles with Ben Greenfield. Are That's these like our guy beef, <laughs> beef, beef testicles, testicles or okay. lamb testicles? Or yeah. lamb testicles, okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. you've lost everyone. I know. Interesting. So, no, but, but I, I love this. I, I love how unique this is. And honestly, it goes to show too how if you go out of your way to change your diet, you get to a point where your body starts to crave this stuff and enjoy it. It's so, conditioning, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's conditioning. Yeah. I've gotta believe that our ancestors ate those things oh, yeah. without a doubt I, and i'm not I, saying sure. everybody needs to right i'm just saying it's edible so where do you get your balls from <laughs> <laughs> probably also white oak. White, white, oak, white oak white oak has the best balls oh dude. my god such this good balls in white oak. <laughs> and and so um when i'm thinking about all of this and and uh nose to tail for most people even someone like me like i've tried liver and other things and like it's fine it's it's great when i can mix it in with the if there's an organ grind uh, or even do some sort of liver worst. Like yeah. I can, I can tolerate that. Um, don't love it. And so the desiccated liver pills work well for me as a, a sort of supplement. I know you're not a huge fan of supplements, but those are, th- those are, if you're not going to eat liver, it's an okay supplement is what you're saying. Right. Because yeah. it's actually not, it's not processed uh, in, in the sense that it's, it's simply just freeze dried, right? It's yeah. freeze dried. So it's low temperature dehydrated and there's no binders. Right. One of the main issues okay. I have with supplements is hydroxymethylcellulose, titanium dioxide, silicon dioxide, vegetable stearates, right? Yeah. So there's none of that in yeah. like in like these desiccated organ yeah. supplements. From so if you get a piece of liver, you thaw it out. A piece of liver is pretty like this. It's big, yeah. Yeah. It depends how depends how strong you are. <laughs> <laughs> so like, how many days does it take you to go through a thawed out piece of liver? I eat about an ounce or two a day. Okay. So you know, a pound of liver is going to last me a week for sure. Okay. Can you just have a week? worth of liver sitting in your refrigerator it doesn't go bad or do you, have, do, you have to like cut do, it let it thaw I would, cut it I would let only it thaw? thaw the liver for about three to four days okay and then re- and then for thawed out yeah okay it starts to 
So okay, so after three or four and, days of it being thawed out, that's where you should probably. And not if you're eat worried, yeah. if you're worried about the 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 pathogens, you can always uh, lightly sear it. Is, is that yeah, you right? can always sear. Okay, it. okay. I'm only asking because I really am like to, I might send you an email later just to get some clarification on oh, stuff yeah. because I I'm totally willing to try this out now to get I rid should, of my eczema. Now I wish I'd brought liver. <laughs> I totally would do a liver shooter with you on, I do on, right now. on the podcast. <laughs> Let's get back to fat because you eat quite a bit of fat, uh, and uh, <clears throat> whether it's tallow or the beef suet. Uh, and and we could talk about those. Back to my dysbiosis. Why? I think I understand rudimentarily why, why I can't uh, digest it because it shuttles toxins into to my body. But can you explain that um, for me and for, for the audience? Like right now, because of the gut dysbiosis I have, if I eat too much fat, I feel awful. Yeah, it's this is I think I think that Tommy and myself and many people in the health space would agree that this is really one of the things that we don't fully understand is how the gut gets disordered, how we get a disordered dysbiotic microbiome and how we fix it. Right. Mm. And you know this personally, oh, yes. that it's I've been, been challenging. 15 it's been, months now. It's been challenging to fix it, you know, and, and you know, I, I did a podcast with Lucy Mayling and I've talked to Tommy about this and lots of people in the space who are super smart that we're trying to continue this dialogue. So for people that don't um, just to back up for people, in the gut, there are tr hundreds of trillions of microbes. There are probably thousands of species, but overall hundreds of, of trillions of microbes. And the term dysbiosis means you have the wrong ecosystem. There are mm -hmm. weeds in the garden, mm -hmm. and the garden has become overrun with weeds. Well, mm -hmm. how does it get that way? For a lot of people, they have experiences like yours. Mm -hmm. They get a gastroenteritis. They go to Mexico, freaking Mexico. Mm -hmm. They go to somewhere, and they get something weird in the water, and then after that, they're gut flora, the microbiota populations are disordered. We get dysbiosis. Mm. Yeah, this happened to me in, in Brazil. And, and it also doesn't help that I took uh, antibiotic for 13 straight years, Bactrin. And, and so for, I already, uh, for acne. Exactly. Which was from, I mean, I also have a soy allergy. So like mm. the acne was probably caused mostly by the soy and my diet in general. And of course, uh, Accutane and then acne, as opposed to hey, yeah. how about you just uh, consider changing your diet? Dude, a little Accutane bit. isn't even legal anymore. Uh, actually, it is. That, they re that, they re legalized it. I, I think it's illegal in some countries. It's still, oh, I was just wow. talking about dermatology because I was having a, I had a precancerous mole removed a couple weeks ago, and I talked to the dermatologist. I'm like. I can't believe you know people were used to Accutane. He's like, what are you talking about? I still prescribe it all the time. Oh, oh yeah. my! And I'm God. like, oh, remind me not to listen to you. Wow. It's a, yeah, so this is, this is great. This is what we were talking about, right? Western medicine, mm -hmm. well-intentioned, lots uh -huh. of intelligent people, paradigm completely wrong. Yeah. Symptom-focused, pharmaceutical-based. Yeah. What is the root cause? They even diagnose you with symptoms. You have IBS. That's <laughs> yeah. a symptom. Yes, yeah. That is not a disease. That, yeah. that is a symptom of something else that's going on. So yeah, they, we are totally symptom-focused. And then you got on Bactrim, which probably yeah. caused your bacterial populations to be already disordered. Yes. And then you may have been susceptible to a pathogenic organism and the whole thing kind of catches on fire figuratively. Yes. So how do we get people back? If we want to get really granular, dysbiosis appears to be loss of diversity of the microbiome. People throw the term alpha diversity around a lot, but when we lose diversity, when certain populations in the gut overgrow, mm -hmm. things become problematic. It's mm -hmm. a, such a fascinating system. It's it's basically this nodal ecosystem with, you know, it's, it's chaos theory almost. It's so complex, we can't understand it. We're gonna need machine learning to really understand the way all the microbes interact. But mm -hmm. 
if it gets disordered, the web gets pulled to one side and the gut gets inflamed and then the gut probably becomes leaky. Mm-hmm. To, to really simplify it, the gut becomes leaky. The leaky pr- gut means the mucosal layer, which is sort of the, the, the layer that it, it, it's... It's the layer of snot around your intestines, basically, that keeps the... It's a wall. And, and, and by degrading that wall, all of a sudden, things can now pass through. There are two mm. things there that you talked about. There is a mucus layer, uh-huh. but there's also an endothelium. Uh-huh. So there's a, there's a layer of cells called the endothelium, which stands shoulder to shoulder and are linked by tight junctions. Right. And that's like the castle gates. That's the castle wall that's supposed to be tight, right? Mm-hmm. No invaders can get through. But if but that of course, opens when I have, up... When I have like uh, 53 ulcers that we saw in the cam pill that I swallowed, that is just an, a wide gap. Gaping Swiss hole. cheese, mm. yeah. Swiss cheese for it, right? Yeah. And on top of that is mucus, right? Uh-huh. And so there's two things. There's, there's a mucus layer, which is kind of created by these cells called goblet cells that reside in the crypts in the gut. And interestingly, in the book, I talk about some research, admittedly in animal models, that lectins in food, these carbohydrate binding proteins, might be interacting with those goblet cells and preventing the formation of mucus. When bacteria from the gut touch the epithelial cell layer, the endothelium of the gut, inflammation happens and bacterial populations can overgrow. And so this is probably the best understanding we have of dysbiosis, that the mucus layer goes down for some reason, whether it's lectins or other plant toxins or something else we don't understand. Mm. The bacteria touch the gut and they overgrow and you get dysbiosis. And then Mm. we end up with a disordered gut. So when there's lack of diversity, and Tommy and I have had lots of conversations about this, What we know is that if there is the wrong population in the gut Mm -hmm. and you put in a whole bunch of fat, something called lipid rafts can form and cell wall components from those bacteria can be shuttled into your body. Hmm. It's not that fat is bad for humans. It's that in people who have dysbiosis, loss of diversity, inflammation, fat can create a vehicle, a lipid raft by which lipopolysaccharide, which is a component of the bacterial cell wall, can move into your body and further piss off the immune system, Mm -hmm. further trigger inflammation. Interesting. So just like you're saying, in people who have this condition, often a low-fat diet can be helpful temporarily. Right. From, and that's where I am right now. It's it's a lot of This might be why Mariah chicken. has an issue, too, with the straight carnivore diet. It's because it's too much fat. It could yeah. be, depending on what's in her gut. Yeah. She, she, she has, and so the diversity thing, we often think of like a diverse gut being a good thing. We talked about this last time we did the podcast with you and Rich and Tommy, where where you can also have a bunch of criminals in there. So you have the diversity of a prison where like the neo-Nazis are over here and then the MS-13 here and the Bloods and the Crips. And, and, and you all of a sudden you realize like, yeah, there's diversity there, but but I have just a war going on in the gut as opposed to this healthy community of of. Mm of microbes and even what we would might call pathogens that actually coexist with the the supposed good guys. Mm. And before Ubiome went out of business and were raided by the feds, um, which is a conversation for another day, um, I, we, we did a test and, and, and we looked at my, my gut and it was very diverse. It was just all of the, the bad diversity at the time. Now this was after doing the, or having the, the uh, negative consequences of the food poisoning event coupled with many years of, mm. of antibiotics. And unfortunately, we don't know how to get it back. I've been working with Lucy Mailing recently. She's amazing. Um, we're trying to reduce the inflammation in my gut right now. And then I mean, we'll figure out the next steps and we're not going to solve it on this podcast, I don't think. But I, I do want to talk about a few things. 
since we're there. One is we were talking about Ryan. Mm-hmm. How does someone? Ryan is a, is a normal, healthy American. Like I feel pretty lucky. Uh, like you know, knock on wood, I could eat like a bucket of nails and it function really well, except for the red meat. Mm-hmm. But I. But what we talked about during the minimal episode is it might be because I'm not eating enough fat with the red meat that I have. But other than that, like I'm, I'm a tank dude. I feel like Uh, I went to Brazil and I felt better when I came back from Brazil. Now, how does someone (laughs) like him or maybe even someone, uh, podcast, Sean is a good example or even Jordan, uh, Jordan's young though. And so he's, he's got young privilege. He's He's Gumby still. Yeah, He is, uh, he actually age wise. He's very ambiguous. He's either 20 or 50. I've never asked. (laughs) Um, and 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 Sean, he is uh, he is also like super strong and able to tolerate a bunch of stuff. How would someone like Sean or, or Ryan, who don't have autoimmune, con- well, Ryan has slight autoimmune condition, yeah. but someone like Sean doesn't have autoimmunity, how how would they benefit from this sort of uh, carnivore diet or, or eliminating some stuff? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Josh mm-hmm. or podcast Sean is divulging his age right now, which we won't repeat. Yeah, he's in he's in his late forties. Doesn't yeah. look a day over early forties. Right. <laughs> he he really does like I think Sean looks younger than me. He's got like he's always had this baby face thing going on. Yeah. Anyway. So the the pieces of the carnivore diet that I think are interesting are are many. So we talked about autoimmunity, right? Maybe for some people who have autoimmune disease issues or inflammation, there's a plant compound that can be triggering it. Mm-hmm. Other things can trigger autoimmunity as well, but that's one application of a carnivore diet. Mm-hmm. The other applications of a carnivore diet are increasing your consumption of the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. Mm-hmm. And that may sound like hyperbole, but when we actually look at the content of animal foods in terms of vitamins and minerals, we touched on this a little bit earlier with vitamin K2 and maybe some vitamin A and liver, animal foods win hands down, mm. hands down. Animal Except foods for vitamin C. We can talk about that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Animal yeah. foods win hands down. So everything except vitamin C, but vitamin C is still in animal foods. Right. And so we'll, we'll go very, into- very small amounts. That's relative, yes. right? What is what is small and what is large? Uh, well, small is, is enough to prevent scurvy, but the question is, what is what is optimal? What is optimal, right? right? And, and so, and, and I heard your you know four hour dissertation with Chris Masterjohn about this. So, <laughs> so um, uh, yeah, we, we probably don't need to to belabor that. We we don't know how much is enough is ultimately mm-hmm. the 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 correct thing to say here. But everything else, what you're saying is. Every essential vitamin, mineral, nutrient, mi- micronutrient, macronutrient that we need as humans can be found in animal foods. And likely we can't say the same thing for plants. We cannot say the same thing for plants and animal foods are extra credit because there are multiple nutrients in animal foods that do not occur in plants that we know humans need to be optimal. Mm. Choline, carnitine, carnosine. I should say they do not occur in adequate or any significant amounts in plants. Mm. Choline, carnitine, creatine, carnosine, taurine, vitamin B12, vitamin K2, the list goes on and on and on. And I talk about all of these in the book. I talk about why they're essential for humans, but suffice it to say that creatine is a molecule we use to store phosphate groups for ATP, the energy currency in our body. Mm. And in vegetarians, when we give them creatine, they get smarter. Interesting. (laughs) Suggesting that 
they have a deficiency of this nutrient and by giving it back to them, mm. we don't see the same thing in omnivores, you know? Huh. And we can talk about relative intelligences of vegetarians versus sure. omnivores, whatever. But when we give omnivores creatine, they generally don't get improvements in uh, spatial learning, decision-making tasks, and quickness of reaction time. Mm. When we do with vegetarians, we see that. So it suggests, hey, they are getting better when we give them this molecule. Mm. They're, and we know that they're deficient in creatine because there's no creatine in animal, in plant foods. Mm-hmm. Lots of creatine in animal foods. And that's kind of the same pattern we see with all these nutrients. So mm. you're absolutely right, Joshua. Um, all of the nutrients that we need to function optimally are found in animal foods in the most bioavailable forms. Right. In yeah. the form that is compatible with our biochemistry. We illustrated this earlier with vitamin K2 versus K1, kind of like plant and animal forms, broadly speaking. Vitamin A, which is a retinol form versus beta carotene. There are similar forms of B vitamins that are much less bioavailable in plant foods than mm-hmm. animal foods. And all the minerals we need, magnesium, zinc, selenium, copper, copper iron, they're bound to molecules like oxalate and phytic acid in plant foods, which makes them much less bioavailable. Mm. So when someone says these almonds are high in magnesium, you cry foul because that magnesium is going to go right out your you're, you know, right out in your poop because yeah. it's chelated and you're not going to absorb it. Right. It's like, like uh, I think the sort of parodic example here would be yeah, a, a rock is full of minerals, but try eating the rock and getting anything out of it. Right? Yeah, well, it's like silver, you know, can be healthy for you. But if you're eating just silver, like there's a dude at its terminus where he literally turned blue. Oh. Because he was eating so much silver. Look it up. It's pretty crazy. Wow. But anyway, uh, yeah, no, I mean, just to your point, it's like, yeah, try eating the rock and, and see if it actually does so, you any good. So someone who feels relatively good, I think quite often one thing that I didn't notice is I didn't realize when I when I finally went to the, the carnivore uh, diet for those two months, I didn't realize how inflamed I actually was. Exactly. You mm. don't even know how good you could be. Right. Mm. And, and so let me ask you this. Why did I feel so great? Like why my libido, why was my libido through the roof? Why Why? Why, why was that? I mean, you could cut a diamond with my dick. <laughs> I would argue that twice a day is kind of normal. Uh, see, that's because that, not, not for, so I'm almost 40, right? And and Ryan's, uh, uh, Ryan has the um, so you're saying if I go carnivore, it'll be like eight times a day for me. He has a testosterone <laughs> of 19-year-old LeBron James. And um, here's the thing, though. Like, for me, uh, twice a day is never – even when I was a teenager, it wasn't normal. <laughs> oh, okay. okay, yeah, okay. And, and so yeah. like for It's me, all relative. It goes back to right, the perspective. Right. And, and my, my testosterone, even before all this, was relatively low, about 505, I think. Mm-hmm. Last time I tested, this was three or four years ago. Um, and and what I, what I learned is – through, I mean, the test and everything can find that's you know what we call this functional medicine, but really it's ha- how you feel. It was the most important thing, and I can tell you those two months for me told me exactly what was possible in my life. Mm. Now I lost it, and after the whole trip to Brazil, and I've never been able to get it back. It, it gave me this this snapshot of oh my god, this is how amazing this is how good life, life can be. Yeah. Can be, yeah. and I will do anything to get back to that. So we can, we can talk about that as well. But why did I? Is it a hormonal thing? What? To, let's talk about hormones. Let's talk about why I felt so good. Let's talk about the mental clarity. There are multiple hypotheses, right? Yes. Was it something in plants that was causing low level inflammation that you removed? Mm-hmm. And it or, wasn't low level for me. All right. Was so, it so, high level inflammation? Yeah. So like I'll, I'll do a ice bath or whatever. And it's great for if I, cause I, I will go over to Voda and like, I'll stay mm-hmm. in the ice bath for eight minutes and it's 31 degrees. It's, you know, it's salinated. So it's slightly below freezing and 
it's amazing. I'll get out of there like, oh, wow. But then, of course, five hours, ten hours later, next day for sure, it's all back. Mm-hmm. So the removal of plant toxins, in your case, might have resolved, sounds like it resolved, some moderate to high level inflammation. Very high level. And then you concentrated, this is what we were talking about, you are concentrating the most bioavailable sources of nutrients on this planet. You are giving your body tons of zinc. Your body needs zinc to make testosterone. You're giving your body lots of vitamin A. Or mm. But can't we supplement most of these things? Like zinc, for example. Yes and no, right? Yes and no. We talked about this earlier. Can you get it out of a rock? You know, a, a supplement is like a rock, right? right? It's not a biological matrix. But I have a zinc pill in my pocket right now. Right. How is that? That is pure zinc, right? It's pure zinc, but do you absorb it? And then what about the way that it balances with other nutrients? This has gets actually to some pretty interesting high level stuff. Mm-hmm. If you look at animal foods, if you look at foods in general, there are not usually large outliers in terms of lots of one mineral and small amounts of another. They all kind of balance each other out. This is actually recapitulating the nose to tail mm-hmm. conversation. Mm-hmm. If you eat too much zinc and you don't get enough copper, mm-hmm. you can get a copper deficiency, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So. This is the problem, and a copper deficiency can cause low testosterone. So, mm. but when you're eating animal foods together, it all kind of works, mm. right? There's copper in liver, there's zinc in muscle meat. Th- this is our evolutionary programming. We should not really be surprised. Mm-hmm. We are trying as humans desperately to outsmart evolution, to mm. outsmart nature, mm-hmm. and generally it fails, right? Mm. Because there's two million years of programming that our ancestors have been eating buffalo, bison, elk, and occasional plants during times of survival or starvation. Mm-hmm. We should probably keep eating those things. I'm not saying humans can't change or that there can't be evolution in humans, but those are going to be much more evolutionarily consistent with our biochemistry and biology than a zinc pill. And mm. you talk about this in the book about how plants quite often were were starvation foods. And that meant that like if you're starving, of course eat plants. Right. And we see this with indigenous cultures, both today and historically. The more meat they could get, the more meat they ate. The more mm. animals, I should say, yeah. right? Yes. Their consumption of animals was limited only by the success of their hunts. Uh-huh. And those cultures that could get more animals ate more animals. Mm. So I'm not, a, I'm not suggesting that humans never ate plants evolutionarily. I'm suggesting that if we look at the patterns that we see, plants generally served a fallback food role. Mm-hmm. And you know, if, if we're in a tribe, and we're not successful today, and there's some berries, we're going to go eat the berries. Right. We might dig up a root. You know, we might try and find something that we think of as less toxic, but mm-hmm. we generally don't want to live on that. And if there's an elk that runs through our camp, you better believe we're all running after that yeah. thing with spears and we're going to eat elk ribeye tonight. So, yeah. What I'm hearing you say is like starvation, uh, does uh, that is uh, worse than the side effects that you get from eating berries, for <laughs> right, example. Death worse than- <laughs> right. Death is worse than some side effects. Yeah. <laughs> and if we, this is another fascinating thing. If we look at the way indigenous people prepare plants, they generally ferment them. Mm-hmm. Right, and yeah. that is a detoxification process, mm. and it will degrade polyphenols. It will degrade isothiocyanates. We talked about this on the minimal episode. Mm. If you're taking broccoli or brassica vegetables and you ferment them into sauerkraut, the glucosinolates, which are the precursors to isothiocyanates like sulforaphane, are mm. degraded. Mm. So this, they become less toxic, more of a pure calorie source, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. ultimately survival is first about calories. So it's first about macros, exactly. Mm. And then micros, micros long-term. Yeah. Micros long-term. Mic- macros get you till tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Protein, fat, carbohydrate, calories. Mm-hmm. Micros get you to next month, next week, next year with a fertile, healthy body. Awesome. You know, you can survive for three months on Twinkies. Sure. You're not going to be... How are you going to feel in three months, though? Exactly. Yeah. You yeah. know? So so we... Man, I feel like we could just like talk for hours and hours about this. There are two things I really want to discuss. Uh, one is, is how do I lose weight 
in a healthy way. Mm-hmm. Is a carnivore diet going to help me do that? Because uh, that's where I'm at right now. Like I want to, I want to be a little bit leaner. Like when I snowboard, it's a lot easier for me to like control myself when I don't have an extra 15 pounds hanging around. The other thing I want to talk about too is uh, what unhealthy meats do you recommend people don't eat? Sure. Uh, or animal products because uh, like egg yolks versus egg whites. And then also what if there was like say your top three vegetables or your top three plant-based things like okay, if you're going to eat plant-based things, these are the only three things you should eat. Like, what would those be? And you could start with any of that. Okay, right. You guys love just hammering yeah, like, man. multiple questions. <laughs> let, me like, just, let me just let me just give like, you a fire hose of questions. <laughs> this is like Jeopardy, man. It's like okay, this but, is, but this, this is, is good like, though, man. You get to like, choose what you want to talk about. <laughs> I want to talk about all of it. <laughs> Let's we'll start with the weight loss. Yeah. Weight loss. Weight right. loss. Okay, <clears throat> so weight loss, I think at a basic level, boils down to calories in, calories out. Right. Like I could technically lose weight on a Twinkie diet if you I just, absolutely yeah. could lose weight on a Twinkie diet. What what that equation misses is that the food you eat affects your satiety okay and the more nutrient dense the food you eat is the more satiated you're going to be and the more enjoyable it's going to be to lose weight mm-hmm. and the more sustainable it's going to be to keep it off yes that's right? why if i just eat rice i'm hungry an hour later there's exactly no, there's no micronutrients there's no in micronutrients in rice and it's for pure carbohydrates right. so it's not really going to affect it you could lose weight just eating rice mm-hmm. right right but as we suggested right eating, just eating rice isn't going to lead to some major nutrient deficiencies in the short term even quickly right mm-hmm. so I believe that the way to lose weight sustainably is to create satiety. The human body is programmed over 4 million years of hominid evolution Mm -hmm. to never stay in a prison of calorie restriction, to never stay without micronutrients, right? That's not an evolutionary good thing for us, evolutionarily good thing for us. That is starvation. You don't want that, right? Right. So if you diet by simply limiting calories, weight watchers, et cetera, Mm -hmm. you're going to fail. Unfortunately, the majority of time we fail because that is millions of years Mm -hmm. of evolution saying you can do it short term, Mm -hmm. but eventually you're- It's not sustainable. Your body's going to break out of that prison. Yes. So I think that a carnivore diet could be very helpful for you. You give your body the most nutrient-rich foods. You create satiety. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying carbohydrates are bad. I'm saying that for a lot of people, carbohydrates can affect satiety negatively. Mm-hmm. And where are the micronutrients in the carbohydrates? Mm-hmm. As Josh is saying, for some people, a small amount of carbohydrates at certain times can be helpful. But we talked a little bit about ketos, ketosis and ketogenic diets or low-carb diets. I'm not saying low-carb diets are the only way to lose weight, but they are a very effective way for a lot of people because Mm -hmm. they improve satiety. Mm. One of the things we know about ketones is that they affect satiety in a positive way, meaning we are less hungry. When you develop that electrical engine, you can tap into all of the fat on your body. Mm. That's what gets burned at a high level, basically, when you're in ketosis, right? You tap into this really big gas tank that Mm. you've got. Mm -hmm. The muscle glycogen gas tank is about 2,000 calories. Small gas tank, right? Carbohydrate gas tank, real small. Electrical, quote, gas tank, real big. We've all got 20,000 calories, 30,000 calories of fat on our body, Mm -hmm. which is what we will do in terms of starvation. Mm -hmm. Well, being on a low carb diet kind of taps into that. You're more satiated between meals. You can go longer amounts of time between meals and it's easier to limit the calories you consume. It puts you in less of a sort of satiety prison. Mm -hmm. I found I wasn't ever getting hangry when I was (laughs) on a low carb. So what I'm hearing you say, Paul, is... You, I need to. Uh, the, the reason why carnivore would help me is because I'm going to feel satiated, and uh, that's going to tap into some fuels that I'm not used to burning. Um, b- but it's also it's not starving myself, but it is still taking in. Well, the equation of losing weight is taking in less calories than what you put out. Exactly. Okay. The other piece of that equation that is often missed is that the foods you eat can affect calories out. 
The foods you eat appear to be able to affect your metabolism. This is hotly debated, right? Mm, okay. Hotly debated. Okay. But there does appear to be a possibility that your metabolism may increase. So you may burn more calories, right? Okay. And if you look at overfeeding experiments, this is quite nuanced. And Tommy and I have talked about this many times, but it's pretty hard to get someone to gain weight if they don't have a combination of carbohydrates and fat. Interesting. We, we talked about this a little earlier. The combination of carbohydrates and fat is an evolutionarily rare thing. There mm. are not many places where those occur together. Okay. That's why bodybuilders function best when they're eating chicken and rice, basically, or, or you know steak and rice. They need that carb because bodybuilding is, by the way, an unnatural state. Exactly. Mm, exactly. Okay. But carbohydrates and fat together, ice cream, donuts, breast milk, that is uniquely satiety preventing. Mm. That sort of short circuits our mechanisms and says, hey, you're sucking on a boob. Keep going, dude. Right. <laughs> like, you're going to get real fat. Like This yeah, is good for you, yeah, right? Yeah. Uh, milk is hard to stop eating. Yeah. Uh, cheese is hard to stop eating. So what is a very what is a reasonable strategy for people losing weight is to limit either fat mm. or carbohydrates. We know that low-fat, high-carbohydrate diets can work for weight loss. Interesting. And high-fat, low-carb diets can work for weight loss. Hmm. It's more difficult, but doable, yeah. to do moderate carb, moderate fat. So yeah. it's totally doable. You just have to be a little more disciplined and really be appreciating that processed foods will short-circuit your satiety mechanism. So the first thing for you is alcohol, yeah. right? Get rid of that Cut and lose out. weight right, right away. Okay. Second thing, get rid of processed foods. Don't mm -hmm. short-circuit your satiety mechanisms. Your body is not going to stay in a satiety prison. It has not done it for four million. It will not do it. You will cheat, right? Okay. And more things are processed than we realize, right? Yes. Sure. So, so a lot of the things we think of as, as natural are actually processed. If it's got a label, if it's in a package. It's probably processed. Probably processed, yeah. right? Okay. And then thirdly, you can certainly do a low carb strategy like carnivore, mm -hmm. but you don't have to. Okay. And, and then that, that kind of segues to your next question is, is which are the least toxic plant foods? Yes. Or which plant foods might work for some people? Right. So we talked about this a little bit in the minimal episode. I think of the least toxic plant foods as the non-sweet fruits. Um, so fruit is generally the plant's effort to move its seeds through an animal to a pile of manure. Right. right? Okay. And it's not going to make the fruit toxic generally the seeds are toxic because it doesn't want the animal to eat the seeds it doesn't mm -hmm. want the animal to digest the seeds okay the skin <laughs> sometimes is a little bit toxic but non-sweet fruit what is that avocado olives uh squash if you're not trying to be low carb which i don't think you have to be okay squash um things like this can be really good for uh these are the, what i would think of as the least toxic plants right okay and, you know, you could build on that with some tubers, occasional sweet potatoes, maybe, depending how you wanted to leverage the low-carb versus moderate-carb thing. Okay. Maybe some sweet fruit, but I think that the sugary fruit has dental problems, et cetera, et cetera. Berries, maybe, it would be lower lower, lower, uh, lower sweetness, lower sugar fruit. So, so like, like blueberry, problem? yeah, okay. Is that your problem with fructose in general is uh, dental problems or what else? Oh, man, the, the fructose thing is... Uh, is a is a rabbit hole. Okay. There, mm. What's the high level problem? The high level that? problem. I mean, in excess, fructose, potentially even from fruit, appears to be hepatotoxic, and which means it appears to damage our liver. And mm. so, a lot of people talk about this. Robert Lustig, many people, fructose fructose is a different sugar than glucose. And it doesn't really behave in the same way in our body as glucose. Now, moderate amounts of fructose, fructose from fruit, probably okay. But the, the current understanding that I have is that if we exceed a certain amount of fructose, mm -hmm. it can cause damage to ours. And that is 
pretty true. Like if we look at animals, um, what do animals overconsume to get fat before the winter? Fruit. Like, yeah. I mean, bears get fat on blueberries. They right. eat a shitload of blueberries, right? Yeah, and yeah, so yeah. that's potentially what's going on. Humans also have, this is not super high level, humans also have something called a uricase mutation that doesn't break down uric acid as well. Mm. And it appears that that may have been an evolutionary adaptation to get fat eating fruit to survive long, harsh, cold winters of the northern climes. Hmm. So we're trying to figure this out. It's unclear at this point. I don't think many people would imagine that sucrose, processed table sugar, which is a, uh, a disaccharide of glucose and fructose, right? Two sugars put together is sucrose. I don't think anyone would imagine that that is good or that high fructose corn syrup is good. Mm. But then the question is, is fruit bad for us? Mm. I would say that at a teeth level, it's probably not good for you. That's okay. pretty clear, right? Yeah, yeah. And that to me is enough of an indication to say, don't overconsume it. Yeah. Evolutionarily, I can think about it. We probably only had it for short amounts of time at certain latitudes, not all year, not every day, right? Yeah. In general, does fruit do anything for us that we can't get otherwise? I don't know, great question. Mm. Is it a little bit okay sometimes? Probably, like I said, the berries, maybe less sweet fruit. So in answer to your question, yes, the dental benef- the dental problems and potential metabolic issues if we overconsume it. Now, do we so, get those same problems with honey? <clears throat> honey is about, I want to say 40, 45% fructose. So okay. again, it's like, how much do you, how much are you eating, right? Yeah. Mm. Um, and um, if you look at the amount of fructose in honey or the amount of sugar in honey, it depends how many tablespoons. Like how many tablespoons a day do you think you're eating of honey? One. Small amount, right? Yeah. It's probably less than a piece of fruit. Yeah. 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 So not so, too bad. Yeah. So, so I think that, I think it's, dose dependent Uh that your body can do some but if you overload it maybe it's a problem but i think Mm. we're trying to figure this out well let's talk about some of those things so there are well yeah i mean just before we move on just the so the animal products that we shouldn't eat so so what animal products should we avoid uh that's actually exactly where i was going oh perfect well then never mind let's move on to that (laughs) So, so some carnivores even carnivores have some problems with some foods so we can talk about bad meats Right, but we can also talk about hey, what about milk? animal products. Yeah. Like there's two, there's this dichotomy here where where milk is probably the most complete food, but it's also uh, causing some sort of autoimmune response in a lot of people. So why is that? Uh, it's probably because of a protein in milk called casein, and whether or not we would get immune responses from human breast milk is questionable. We are cross species, right? So we're eating cow's milk or goat's milk or sheep's milk or yak's milk or wherever mm-hmm. we are, right? Camel mm-hmm. milk. Is it the same kind of idea with plants? Are these molecules looking foreign to our body? In cow's milk, what we seem to see is that casein, which is one of the proteins in milk, has a couple of isoforms. There's A1 casein and A2 casein. Mm -hmm. And at least in the studies that have been done, they're observational association studies, but A1 casein from most milk, which is most cow's milk in the US, has been associated with an increased incidence of autoimmune disease. So is A1 casein, which breaks down into beta casomorphine 7, a protein that can be immunogenic, or could that protein be immunogenic and causing immune issues into humans? It seems plausible. Mm -hmm. It seems plausible, right? This is a compound we haven't really seen much. We really don't drink milk past uh, childhood in other species or mm-hmm. you know, evolutionarily, we probably would not have done that. Mm-hmm. So this is a real possible uh, pr- 
problem with milk for some people. Some people do better with A2 milk. Which is like um, goat's milk or Jersey cows. Sheep's milk, buffalo, things like this. Personally, I found that every single milk that I tried caused itchy, flaky skin. It was mm. very noticeable. Mm -hmm. So you stay away from milk altogether. I stay away from dairy altogether. And okay. in the people that I work with, this goes back to your other point, mm -hmm. if they're trying to lose weight, if they're trying to start a carnivore diet or even a carnivore-ish diet that includes mm -hmm. some of the least toxic plant foods, I recommend they avoid milk for 30 to 60 days. To your point, we don't even know how good we can feel until mm -hmm. we feel it, right? Right. How much are we settling for now? What if there's a better level? What if we're sort of living with chronic inflammation or chronic activation of the immune system? We're not even really aware. Maybe not, yeah. but that's a valuable experiment for humans to do. So I yeah. think milk is is probably should stay away. Tolerable from by some people, yeah. I would avoid at least an experiment to avoid it in everyone. To see how you feel. I yeah. like that. Because he's not, again, you're not being dogmatic with it. Try. You're like, try it out. If you're having problems, try not having milk and see what happens. If yeah. you feel better, then don't have milk. <laughs> it, it definitely triggers an immune response with me. Even A2 milk, even uh, kefir, if I, if I have fermented. Fer fermented raw milk. Uh, the problem that I have is I have, a, I have this dysbiosis and all the studies show that if you really want to to cure up all uh, to, to clear up all the ulcers in the in the small bowel one of the best ways to do it is with raw kefir and, and and i haven't been able to sort of reset the gut because every time i do that i get a crazy autoimmune response my ankles start hurting i get urethritis mm. which is not fun Man. um and, and so you have all of these these sort of uh, I don't know. I don't know what to do. I don't, there, I don't have something to replace it with because of the. There is a bunch of beneficial bacteria, especially in kefir. It's like the ultimate probiotic, other than FMT, which we don't have time to talk about FMTs today. Although just to say that I've I've done eight of them. Um, and <laughs> Josh is saying that he's literally had to eat shit. Yes, yeah, <laughs> that's, I'm willing to like get my health back. I'm willing to eat shit. Yeah. Like, that is quite the metaphor. Yeah, it really is. It's it really valid. is. So, um, what about egg yolks versus egg whites? Uh, yes. So egg whites are also immunogenic for people. So okay. there's albumin in egg whites, and a lot of people feel better when they cut out egg whites. Okay. But I'm told the egg white <laughs> omelets are the healthy omelets right. because I don't want to have cholesterol. Right. right. So right. that gets down the cholesterol rabbit hole. We're mm. vilifying cholesterol wrongly. Mm -hmm. Antiquated thinking. Egg yolks are incredibly valuable. Vitamin A, choline, uh, many valuable things in egg yolks. And the cholesterol in egg yolks is almost certainly not contributing to atherosclerosis. That is, again, we can go down the LDL rabbit hole if we want. Uh, dietary cholesterol probably does not raise LDL levels in many people. Even more profoundly or even more fundamentally, uh, I think there is plenty of good evidence to suggest that LDL must be interpreted in a context. Mm. Cannot be interpreted in a vacuum. And LDL is not sufficient to cause atherosclerosis on its own and is too often focused on in a myopic fashion mm. uh, in medicine. And we should think about it in the context of endothelial damage to the blood vessels and insulin sensitivity. That's a whole other rabbit hole. Are there, are there any <clears throat> other animal products? So milk we talked about can be a problem. Egg whites can be a problem. Are there any other animal products? Uh, honey, I guess, is technically an animal product. And if you eat it in excessive amounts, there's going to be issues with that. Mm -hmm. Are there any other animal products that we've missed that people might have some immune? Salmon roe. I have, I have an issue with salmon roe. I wonder okay. if it's histamine. I or... think it is. Yeah, so this brings up a great point. Mm -hmm. Fermented meat, dry-aged meat, aged meat can cause histamine reactions mm -hmm. for people. Okay. There are both plant and animal foods that appear to be able to trigger the, the histamine system. Some hmm. people have histamine reactions to bone broth. And okay. it, uh, in talking to Tommy and other people, what we believe is that this is 
probably related to dysbiosis, right? Mm-hmm. Is it a GI thing? For some reason, the liver's inflamed, the liver can't break down the histamines. Perhaps there's a genetic component regarding the enzyme DAO or diamine oxidase. So yeah, some okay. processed foods. So in terms of animal foods, I'm less of a fan of smoked and cured and processed meats. Okay. I'm less of a fan of like salamis, probably not the worst thing in the world, but I'm less of a fan of that mm-hmm. and these these aged meats. And we what we know is that the aging of the meats depletes some of the nutrients. We mm-hmm. talked a little bit about vitamin C earlier mm-hmm. and the fact that, yeah, aging a meat will probably degrade the vitamin C, but fresh meat has vitamin C in it. Fresh organs, vitamin C in it. So um, I Do don't you think, eat a lot of like tartare and stuff or like are you cooking your steaks? I like my steaks medium rare to okay. rare. Okay. Um, I will do tartare from time to time. I had some amazing lamb tartare at Belcampo recently. Dude, tartare is like, yeah, it's, it's good. really good. It's it really good. is, yeah, if it's, it's done good. Right. It's good stuff. <clears throat> yeah. And raw meat, I think it's uh, very evolutionarily consistent with what we would have done, eating it from time to time. Awesome. So, yeah, I'm trying to think of other animal foods to avoid. I will mention that some people are sensitive to pork. You know, okay. some people are sensitive to pork. Pork is raised differently than cows. Yeah. Uh, and some people may be sensitive to grain fed pork. Some people may be sensitive to, um, some people may be sensitive to grain fed beef. Mm. And occasionally some people are sensitive to beef. Interesting. And, and I don't know okay. if this is just dysbiosis leading to leaky gut, either eating a lot of beef and then they get sensitized to it. Yeah. But so if people are sensitive to beef and they can try lamb or bison or chicken or turkey, so that's pretty rare, but that's mm-hmm. another thing that in the, in the equation. I, yeah, I, th- I do think it's a dysbiosis thing with all, all, all the things you just mentioned. So right now with me, beef is, is problematic. Lamb is not. Um, and salmon roe is problematic. Eggs are devastating mm. and uh, probably egg whites in particular i'm not i'm not 100 percent certain about that uh any dairy product is devastating to me so it's not just like well eat all animal products like i would still be devastated if exactly. i just ate animal yeah. products yeah. good good well. thing to notice that for people some people who are really sick we have to get we have to get more specific and look at you know sensitivities mm. now now yeah. uh, back to the the prime of my life it was the summer i turned 30 so i had just turned 37 so this was almost two years ago when i, w- I did that two-month experiment it felt great energy was wonderful i assume my hormones were like changing in some way um our hormones change as we get older in fact we're going to have adam lamb on the podcast at some point to talk about the hormones changing as we get older um do you take any of that into consideration? Um, I mean, as a doctor or as a uh, as a carnivore, is that something you have to think about? Yeah, we think about it. I think that the main issue for people on ketogenic, low-carb, carnivore diets and hormones is lack of calories, right? So what we know in humans is that if we are in a caloric deficiency, our hormones will change because that is essentially a starvation period. Mm-hmm. When we are trying to lose weight, and in the process improve, improve insulin sensitivity or other issues, it's probably a good thing and it's okay to have hormones change or perhaps the hormones will not change as much when we are losing weight. Mm-hmm. But in people who are lean, and sometimes what I hear on a carnivore diet is I can't keep weight on mm-hmm. because people are not eating enough fat or not getting enough calories, mm-hmm. then, then the hormones will tank. Um, and we know the thyroid will change and the testosterone will go down because our body essentially says, you are starving, stop chasing that girl and go chase an elk. Right. right? <laughs> go chase something that you can eat, dude. Like, yeah. like, just, it, like this is the, this is, I mean, evolutionarily, that's, that's kind of priority number one is you need to get to tomorrow. Mm-hmm. So 
if people are getting enough calories, I, I see changes in hormones less often. And some people will say, oh, my hormones went down on a carnivore diet. Your experience is very different than that, at least in terms of your experience, yeah. your, your sort of, uh, your personal, um, the way that you felt on that in terms of libido and stuff. But I've also seen hormones go up on carnivore diets. And so I don't think we fully understand this. There may be some bio-individuality. Certainly for women, mm -hmm. there's a lot of concern and discussion around can I do a carnivore diet? Can I do a carnivore-ish diet? Can I do a low-carb, high-fat diet and keep fertility, menstrual uh, cycles regular? Mm -hmm. One of the things we know is that ketogenic diets, low-carb diets will help with insulin resistance. Mm. Insulin resistance underlies many of the menstrual irregularities that women can have, polycystic mm. ovarian syndrome, things like this. So mm. if, if a woman is having menstrual irregularities due to polycystic ovarian syndrome, uh, a low-carb diet or uh, weight loss or something that improves insulin sensitivity will improve that. Mm. If someone wow. is having uh, menstrual irregularities due to something else, then it depends on how the carnivore diet will interact with them. But I generally do not think that uh, ketogenic diets are dangerous for hormones or harmful. Like I said earlier, I really think that evolutionarily, we would have been in ketosis probably the majority of the time. Maybe not all the time. Yeah. I liked your point earlier. Maybe it's something that we would have cycled in and out of. So. How much, how often, for what amount of time yeah. on a daily basis. But for a lot of the day, we're in ketosis uh, most throughout most of our evolution. And ketones are not harmful for humans. It's just how is your body changing when it's getting different signals? Yeah. In the epic with Chris Masterjohn, we talked about this concept that starvation does not look like ketosis in all of the ways biochemically, right? Mm -hmm. So there are some ways in which starvation looks like ketosis, but other ways in which a ketogenic diet does not look like starvation. We're getting enough calories, so mm. we're gonna have enough ATP, but other biochemical intermediates change in ways like they do when we are starving. And this gets a little granular pretty quickly here. I did a podcast with David Sinclair about this. Um, one of the benefits of a ketogenic diet are that they seem to turn on longevity genes mm. like the sirtuins because ketones can affect ratios of things like NAD to NADH in a way that is a hormetic, right? It's not a molecular hormetic, it's an environmental hormetic, and that can be beneficial in small doses as well. So mm. again, that gets down the rabbit holes. Uh, <laughs> we can just go on. No, I, I love it, man. We could go on for hours. I mean, I guess I did would- Did I answer your question? You definitely did, yes. <laughs> I guess uh, I would although, just... Although, would you worry about supplementing with hormone? Like, you are, uh, you're in your 40s now, mm -hmm. right? Do you worry about, like, you do TRT or, or HGH or anything like that? I don't, and- And I, not that it's a bad thing if someone not, is doing- not, not that it's a bad thing. I think that too often, men are given hormonal replacement prematurely. Uh -huh. I have a lot of men in my practice who went to their doctor eating a standard American diet, not sleeping well, super stressed, had low TR, had low testosterone, and they go, why don't you go on TRT? Not the way to do it. Mm. Right. Not yeah. the way to do it. Like It's covering up a symptom. Covering up a symptom. Like, yeah. what is causing that? Why don't mm. we get you sleeping better? Mm. Why don't we change your diet, right? Mm. Why don't we get a little alcohol out of there? Or maybe you're exposed to a xenoestrogen. Maybe you've got plastic in all your house and everything you're eating is in plastic and you're eating mm. out of plastic cans and you've got so much of this in your life. Like, I don't think men need that right off the bat, right? Mm. I wanna take away, I wanna make sure that we are turning over every single stone. Mm -hmm. I have men in my practice who are in their late 60s who have testosterone of 800, mm. right? So wow. are they genetic anomalies, right? It's funny because <clears throat> he's a dentist and he says, oh, hi, this is, you know, so-and-so, the high T dentist. And every time he texts him, I'm like, I know who you are, you know? <laughs> I remember you. And 
you know, I mean, he's doing all the right things. He's eating a low carb diet that's carnivore-ish. Again, I don't think that's the only way to be healthy. Yeah. He's exercising. He's of a good body composition. Mm-hmm. He uses a red light on his balls. You know, Ben Greenfield loves that kind of stuff. And I play around, <laughs> you know, like, but probably ultraviolet light on our skin is important yeah. and, and red and near infrared, all the spectra of the, you know, so there are so many pieces of this equation regarding men's hormones and women's hormones yes. that I think are not considered fully before both men and women get hormonal replacement. And my goal, uh, my hope is that I also will be a 70 year old man with a testosterone of 900. Yeah. So we'll see. I mean, it's it's an interesting question. Yeah. I'm hoping to be a 40 year old man with a testosterone of <laughs> 900. So if uh, that's about where I'm at right now, I hope to yeah, stay that way. So uh, if, if people want to like hear more about stuff, these conversations, they can totally go to your but your podcast, uh, Fundamental Health, and check it out and and geek out on this stuff. Um, like I said, we could go on for hours and hours and hours, and unfortunately, we can't. But they yeah. can totally check it out over at your podcast. Let, let's wrap up with one thing because I, I would be remiss if we didn't talk about this. Uh, I, we need to talk about morality mm-hmm. and, and ethics around consuming meat because I think there is the the diet side, and I think you've done a very compelling argument to say that that while the the carnivore diet seems to be to more than adequate to provide all of the macro and micronutrients that we need to live optimally. The problem is that we're killing animals to do this. Mm-hmm. And so I think we, we need to talk about that and, and how, how do we grapple with in this time that we're, yes, it's something we've done for a long time, but we've done a lot of things as humans for a long time that aren't necessarily good. And so just because we've done something for a long time doesn't mean that we should continue to do it. How do we, how do we, how do we tackle this and, and, and deal with the ethics behind eating meat? I think this is one of the, the most interesting parts of the whole discussion. Uh, I think it's going to be very individual, and I think everyone is going to have to approach this from whatever, they're, from whatever position they are comfortable with. Personally, I, um, I, I think of animals as... Uh, beautiful pieces of the equation of life with us in an ecosystem on this planet. And I think that as humans, as you suggest, we have always eaten animals and they have always nourished us. And as humans, we have to make a couple of decisions, right? What is the food that is going to nourish me best? And then how am I going to honor that sacrifice and honor that cycle of life in in my own life, right? Mm. So I recently started hunting. I started hunting again recently. I hunted a few years ago for exactly this reason. I wanted to know what it felt like to hunt an animal if I was going to eat animals, especially as the majority of my diet. Mm. And it's it's a very moving process. And I think that a lot of these moral arguments are, or a lot of these ethical considerations are made more clear when we interact with the animals or the plants that we are choosing to eat. Mm. I think very few people gather the plants they eat and see how they are raised and gather the animals they eat. And I think if more people did that, we would understand this a little differently. My experience with eating animals was, or hunting animals was that when I took the animal's life, it was a, it was a moving experience, perhaps some of the most moving experiences I ever had. And both times that I've done this, so I've bow hunted deer twice in my life, both times that I've gotten an animal, I have felt something that I don't get in normal life, which is a responsibility to honor that animal's life in my own life. Mm. It sounds woo-woo, it sounds spiritual, but it almost feels like I take that animal into me. That animal is nourishing me, and now 
I have a responsibility to be a good human to honor that animal's life. Mm -hmm. Personally, I believe that in order for something to live, something else must die. Whether that is a plant, a rodent in a field that we are plowing to make plants, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, where do we divide the cycle of life, right? It's yeah. all, we are composed of bacteria and cells, of fungi. When we plow through a field, to till it, we are both destroying the topsoil, mm -hmm. destroying animals. Mm -hmm. If we want to get down to arguments of life for life, many people have suggested that the, the, the plant agriculture actually removes more life from this planet because of animals killed in the tilling process, animals killed in the harvesting process. Mm -hmm. And they're just, they're smaller animals. So, yeah. so for some reason, we as humans, I, I'm not sure why there's a cognitive dissidence here. We're, we feel okay. We feel that it's better to kill a mouse, a mouse than compared a to yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, a deer or a cow, mm -hmm. or and then even insects is a whole other conversation, right? Yeah. Right. But we also feed uh, a lot of these plants that we're using. We're killing these small animals, feeding those plants to other animals. So the argument might be that we're also feeding animals mm -hmm. plants that were used to. You know, that were, were cultivated yeah. by killing other animals there's also. So it becomes this weird cycle. There's even, cycle, well, I was yeah. going to say, there's even studies to show that like, like when you cut grass, that fresh grass cut smell, that is a distress signal. So like even, you know, so yeah, we're, we're displacing animals, we're, we're killing rodents, we're, we're justifying those things uh, to, to make more fields. But plants also, they don't want to die either. They don't want to die either. Yeah, and, but yeah. they're not sentient. So I, I well, think it's, it's a... I mean, and, and, and that's probably that's a little debatable. Right, actually. it is. Yeah, I mean, uh, may, may, I mean, uh, you you have to believe in uh, panpsychism then in order to 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 think which that many people do. Not really, not oh, many oh. people. Some people. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, and, and and then that becomes a whole other conversation. Are rocks also um, conscious? And, sure. and and also to, to the best of our knowledge, we know that. A mouse is sentient, and so, but that is one life, right? And is if an we insect if, sentient, mm -hmm. right? I, I I don't know. I I, mm -hmm. I assume yes, but I, I'm not entirely certain. And at what point does does someone does something lose sentience? Right? right. Is it bacteria? Mm. Is fungus sentient? Yeah. The largest the largest organism in the world is a fungus. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. And as you plow a field, you are destroying mycorrhizal networks. And so this is all quite interesting. And I can understand where people come from. I think that as animal eaters. We are certainly not ignoring the fact that we are consuming animals uh, and consuming lives, but I just don't see how we get around the fact that to exist on this planet until we become breatharians, mm -hmm. that is the cycle of life. And I do not think that that is a bad thing. I think in, in, in contrast, it is a consistent sacramental thing and a call to lead your life well and to realize that one day all of us will become part of that dirt as well. Yeah. And I want to be, right? Oh, that's such a good point. Like. Everything that's born is bound to die Everything regardless. is going to die regardless, yeah, right? Yeah. It is all a cycle of life. A buffalo dies on the plane, and that buffalo's body becomes the earth, right? Yeah. When I die, I want my ashes scattered, or just, just take my body and just bury me in the Pacific Peninsula forest and yeah. let me let the fungus become a part of me. Like, yeah. is, you know, is that, and then it's, we are all nutrients. Like, if we really think about it, the atoms that make up my body were, were from plants and animals that my mother and father consumed, that my mother consumed. Mm -hmm. Where did she get those atoms? She got those atoms from, like, we're all just atoms moving around here, right? And yeah. I think for me, I see it as we're all going to die. Everything is going to die. Let's do this respectfully. Let's feed ourselves and yes. our families and be healthy and mm -hmm. honor the cycle of life. To me, it's the most beautiful conversation because it is death and that clarifies life. And it's, I just think that it's, it's hard for us and we see it as cool because we are removed from doing it. And, and so we, we're we not agree. reminded of it. 
we, we agree the animal cruelty is, you know, we, we don't want to oh, see, exactly. you see these yeah. videos of like farmers bashing cows in the head with a stick, like that's terrible. And, and, and no one has certainly advocated for that. And also I think factory farming is horrible and we should do something about it. And we should and, talk about that. And, and yeah. regenerative uh, agriculture is really important because, you know, a place like White Oak is actually carbon neutral or actually carbon, carbon negative. negative now, right? They look at life cycle analyses. Mm. And if you come to White Oak, so I hope you guys will come to this May 1st to 3rd. Oh. Everyone's invited. Uh, we're doing White Oak Cella um, for the kids. <laughs> it's Coachella, right? Like, yeah. And we go to White Oak every year and we see the farm and we see the animals. Like they are not hit with sticks, you know? Mm. Right. Like I totally agree with you. Like uh, there, is n- there is nothing about animal cruelty that we are advocating for. These animals lead good lives until they die. Like yeah. most of us hope to, right? Yeah. They are eating the greenest grass they can eat. They are guarded by these dogs that bond with them. They are cared for by the people there. They are on land where, um, you know, everything is composted. They're on land without pesticides and they're not fed antibiotics. They don't get hormones. Yeah. Like this is a totally different cycle of life. And right. yeah. people can come and see it May 1st to 3rd at White Oak. I love it, man. Ryan, I give you permission to eat my body when I die. You know, I was just thinking that, dude. Like, I'm sure many people... You're thinking because, about eating my body? Well, it's kind of. I was I was thinking about how, uh, you know, we're talking about quality, quality of life. And I think about, like, that's really what matters to me when it comes to, you know, the animals that I eat. Like, how was their quality of life? Were they, you know, in a wonderful place like White Oaks or were they factory farmed? Like, I, there is a difference. Um, the the thing is, is like some people might say, well, if that's the case, let's say you were on a farm and you had a good quality of life, but someone cut your life short so they could survive. Uh, so what? If that's what if that's what I had to do personally to like continue the cycle of life, I wouldn't be upset about it. And I, and I I guess it just yeah reiterates like yeah the quality of life. I think that's really what it comes down with the ethical argument because even with plants. You can give plants a really crappy environment. Are they sentient? Okay, let's just say they're not sentient. Mm-hmm. But regardless, though, plants don't want to die. That's been proven. Yes. And when plants are uh, in a bad environment, they don't flourish as well. They have a bad quality of life. Mm-hmm. Again, sentience, uh, you know, let's say they're not, but they, they still absolutely can have a good or bad quality of life. So it's, it's the same with animals, I think. I just want to add one thing. What comes out of this is often the argument, we can't scale white oak. But we totally can. And this is what's so Mm -hmm. cool about regenerative agriculture. People will say, if you eat meat, you are supporting feedlot agriculture because that is the only way that we are going to be able to feed people on this planet. And that is not true. Mm. So grass-fed, grass-finished regenerative agriculture is absolutely scalable. It's absolutely scalable. There is enough land in this country. We could have every single cow in this country grass-finished because most cows eat grass for 85% of their life. So Mm -hmm. all of the cows that we eat if they're grain fed on a feedlot are there for 15% of their life. Now we shouldn't do that at all, but for 85% of their life, they were on grass. Mm. And the reason they go to feedlot is because there is a consumer demand for fattier, bigger meat, and it's more profitable. The other thing that's amazing about regenerative agriculture, there's a farm in Texas called Rome Ranch where they raise buffalo. I got to stand closer to a buffalo than I am to you. Mm -hmm. Like there's nothing between us. It was moving. Mm. And they, you can look at the ground in Texas and it's pretty barren because it was farmed by Europeans. It used to be fertile grassland. This is in Fredericksburg, Texas. 
And it's now barren because it was monocrop agriculture farm, which we know depletes the soil of nutrients, depletes the soil of organic matter. And what the people at Rome Ranch were sharing with me, and I got some references about this, is that if we can increase the amount of organic matter in the soil with ruminants, with animal agriculture, which is the way that we enrich the, 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 the richness of the soil, more grass grows on the soil mm. and we can put more cows on, or more bison or more animals on any specific plot of land. They have more food. And what I think a lot of people fail to realize is that the amount of organic matter in the soil is probably the single greatest metric that will determine the persistence of homo sapiens on this planet. Mm. And monocrop agriculture decreases that, right? Right, wow. And the only way to get that back is composting. And one of the best ways to do that is with ruminant animals that are raised regeneratively. We increase the amount of organic matter. At White Oak, they've taken it from 0.5 to 5. It's brown, brown dirt, wow. right? And then more grass grows, more animals are healthy. It holds more water, there's less runoff. It's probably and also better for our, our, our own microbiome. Mm -hmm. And the carbon is sequestered from the greenhouse gases, right? You get more mycorrhizal networks, the carbon is sequestered, and the life cycle analysis suggests that these farms can become carbon negative. So it's like, it's incontrovertible. It's like, mm -hmm. we need ruminant animals. They were here before we got here. Yeah. Removing them through the Midwest, you know, caused a lot of problems in barren soil. This is the dust bowl, yeah. right? Putting them back is probably a great strategy and it's doable. And we could take all the cows and feedlots, put them there. Everybody wins, mm. sort of. Paul, I want to circle of life. I'm wanna, glad vegan cats didn't come up during this uh, conversation. <laughs> vegan cats. <laughs> I want to encourage people, they, uh, check out your podcast. They can check out your new book. Uh, you can find it all at uh, carnivoremd.com. Your new book is called The Carnivore Code. Your podcast is called The Fundamental Health Podcast. They can follow you on uh, your YouTube channel. You make a lot of uh, videos on YouTube and then also on social media. We'll put a link to all of that in the show notes. Paul, thank you so much for being here, brother. You're amazing, man. Oh, man, it's so great to be here with you guys. TheCarnivoreCodeBook.com. People will find it. Awesome. Thanks for helping me feel a little bit smarter, man. Oh, my I God, dude. It. I hope that was such a fun conversation. <laughs> I mean, I felt stupid half the time, but I also feel a little smarter. <laughs> <laughs> all right, y'all. Love people use things. Thanks so much for your support, y'all. See ya. The Minimalists. <laughs>